Well, I invite you, if you'd like, to turn to John 17. We're going to read verses 6 down through 11 and consider this morning just verses 6 through 8. All right, John 17, beginning at verse 6. Let's, let's pray before we read. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we thank you that you have given it to us in such clear language, lisping to us to accommodate our weakness of mind. And as we think about these things and as your Holy Spirit engages our hearts and souls with these truths, we pray that you would impress upon us what we need to be impressed with so that as your people, we would grow in our faith, grow in our knowledge, and grow in our works so that we won't be just hearers of the word, but also doers. And that any who don't know you would come to know you in truth and rejoice in the salvation you provided in Jesus Christ. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, John 17, we'll begin reading at verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Bless for the reading of God's word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. So, beloved congregation of hope and everyone with us here this morning, uh, in Armenian circles, hyper-Calvinists are joked of. Uh, oftentimes, I came across some of those uh, interesting quips said about hyper-Calvinists. There's a Calvinist dating website. You don't have to sign up. Your dates are already pre-selected. You should be getting a phone call soon. A lot of hyper-Calvinists look at the score at the end of the game without ever looking at the process. Or there, there's a joke that says uh, a hyper-Calvinist uh, scoreboard manufacturing company went broke because they're always telling you what the score is at the end of the game rather than just letting the game take place and uh, going through the process of playing the game. And then also in Calvinist circles, hyper-Calvinist circles, Arminians are joked about. Uh, Arminian's flower is not the tulip, it's the daisy. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. And Spurgeon actually said this, probably on a more serious note, nobody prays like an Arminian. Nobody prays this way. Lord, I thank you. I'm not like those poor, presumptuous Calvinists. Lord, I was born with a glorious free will. I was born with power by which I can turn to you myself. I have improved my grace. If everybody had done the same with their grace that I have, they might have all been saved. Lord, I know you do not make us willing if we are not willing ourselves. You give grace to everybody. Some don't improve it, but I do. And on the prayer goes. And Spurgeon is making fun of those who so emphasize free will as to do away with God's sovereignty. At the same time, there's so what I would call not Calvinists, but hyper-Calvinists, those who so emphasize God's sovereignty as to just totally miss all the commands in the Bible that actually require something of us, the human responsibility side of things. 
these are funny because they capture an element of the truth. We can, we can uh, uh, recognize that. But what I want us to notice as we walk through this passage is actually both of these, both sides of the coin are looked at. The sovereignty of God and in, in the salvation he provides us is really uh, emphasized here. Jesus is going to talk about that. At the same time, he's going to talk about how that salvation is experienced in the lives of his disciples. So both of those truths are looked at here. And I want us to notice those twin truths under two headings. The first one is salvation assured. And then secondly, salvation experienced. So first, salvation assured or secured. And secondly, salvation experienced. And if you would look at verse six, where we are gonna notice salvation assured or secured. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And then verse nine, Jesus says, they are yours. So there's two things I want us to notice here that Jesus is talking about. Yours they were, talking about believers belonging to God the Father, and then God the Father gave them to Jesus. You've given them to me. Those are two truths that secure our salvation. And I want us to start by noticing that every believer, what Jesus is saying here, belonged to God the Father. Now, this is interesting language. And what it has to do with is, in, if you want to look at things linearly, you could say we all belong to God the Father according to his decree when he decided that he would save some out of the fallen mass of humanity that had plunged themselves into sin. And God knew this would happen. He had decreed it would happen. Yet he himself is without sin. And in this decree, he decided that he would save some. So we're all, as it were, drowning in the ocean. Everybody's dead. And he comes along in the ship and decides, hey, nobody deserves to be on my ship, but I'm going to pluck out of death people, resuscitate them, bring them totally back to life, resurrect them spiritually, the dead, and give them life. And he decided who that would be. Now, there's some passages that teach this. Ephesians 1, 4 to 5, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Catch that. Let their light, let there be light, haven't, hasn't been uttered yet. And he decided that we'd be chosen in Christ before that ever happened. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1.11, in Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. Acts 18.9, the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Don't be silent for I'm with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in the city who are my people. And Paul stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Colossians 3.12, put on then as God's chosen ones who are holy and beloved. God's chosen ones, beloved. Jesus in this prayer prays, Father, they were yours. These people that you've given to me to save. They were yours, meaning these are the people that you had determined would be saved. These are the people who have belonged to you. Now, everyone belongs to God in some sense. But notice Jesus isn't saying, hey, I'm praying for the world. He actually says, I'm not praying for the world right now. I'm not praying for the world. I'm talking about the people that we've come to save. I'm talking about the people that you've decreed to save, that I'm here to accomplish their salvation. Those are the people I'm praying for. They were yours, meaning You've decided that they would be saved. You've determined that their names, of all the names in the world, would be written in the book of life. They're the ones who were yours that I've come to work for. 
Now, I want to just pause here for a moment and think about that. We could, we could actually just spend the rest of our time together thinking about this. We're not. This teaches us that before God created anything at all, and before we ever existed and had any opportunity to choose him or reject him or be his enemy as a rebel against any law, God had made a decision about who belongs to him savingly and whom he would pass by. Now, I hope that that can just sit in our hearts and we can wrestle with that. There might be some of us that are thinking, you know, how is that fair? I, we're not going to talk about the fairness of things. Fair would be God sending us all to hell underneath his justice. We're not talking about, well, how could he pass some by? God should have passed all of us by. I'm just saying this is a truth that Jesus is talking about and praying about, regardless of how we feel about it. Now, that may sound harsh, may sound difficult, but the Lord is revealing to us truths about his decree for salvation, and he's not primarily concerned about how we feel about it as, here's the truth. We can believe it, we can ignore it, we can hate it, but here's the truth, that those whom God had, has given to Jesus Christ were his before he gave them to Jesus to, to save them on the cross. They belonged to him. He had determined who they were, and he loves them with an everlasting, eternal love, a love that began before the foundations of the world were ever even put in place. He used the language of Job in Ephesians 1. This is fascinating, beloved. This is so encouraging. Your and my salvation is more secure than anything in all the universe because it rests in a God who existed before the universe was ever even a speck on the map. The second thing I want us to notice about what Jesus says in prayer and about how our salvation is secured or assured is in verse six, whom you gave me out of the world. So Jesus says, look, Father, they were yours. You gave me them out of the world. If you look at verse two, Jesus talks about all whom you have given him, referring to himself. Verse nine, those you have given me. And then verse 24, way at the end of the prayer, whom you have given me. This is a recurring phrase. Jesus talks about those who were God's, God the Father, if we want to be particular, because that's who he's praying to, who were given to Jesus in order that they might be saved. Now, the Father, as it were, has given the Son a list, a list that the Father determined, those whose names are written in the book of life, those who would be saved. And Jesus is now doing the work in history, taking what was determined and decreed in eternity past before time began. Jesus is now busy doing the work of what it takes to accomplish their salvation in real history, in time. So we're no longer dealing with the past decree, but the fulfillment of the past decree by the Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, in history some 2,000 years ago. And Jesus knows the elect intimately and he will know those who were gods that had been given to him way more intimately than we would even know ourselves. How? Because on the cross, what will he do? He will pay for every single one of our sins, and not just our sins, but every believer who's ever lived, is living, and ever will live. He will know just how wretched, how miserable, how sinful we really are, because every one of those he will feel in his body on the tree in some inexplicable way. That's how intimately he will know every one of the people he's come to die to save. All of these are entrusted to Jesus for salvation. Now, this is 
quite incredible news because it means this, the security of our salvation is found in two great truths. God has elected us to salvation. He's chosen us. We belong to him. And the second great truth is that our salvation is accomplished by the God-man, not by us, not by any mere human being, but by the God-man, Jesus Christ, who never fails, who was perfectly obedient, and who went all the way to the cross and could declare it's finished. That's the, what the basis of our salvation rests on, is God, who has never lied, kept every promise, and is more sure than two plus two is four. That's what our salvation is based on. So if somebody were to ask you or ask me, when were we saved? <laughs> we could say, well, I was actually saved three different times. I was saved before the foundations of the world. I was saved by an eternal decree from God. That's when my salvation was secured. I was really saved then. I was also saved in history when Jesus Christ hung on the cross and he was forsaken by God in my place and could cry out, Father, forgive them. I was saved there. That event saved me. It accomplished my salvation. And thirdly, I was also saved in time, meaning my life. When there was a moment after I was conceived where I didn't know the Lord and sometime between conception and my death, I came to believe because the Holy Spirit took this eternal decree that the Son had accomplished and brought it real time right home to my heart and life and gave me a brand new heart and I was regenerated and I believed and I was justified and I came to faith that moment in the Lord Jesus Christ. I was saved then. Saved in eternity past, saved through the work of Jesus on the cross some 2,000 years ago, saved within the past 50 years or whenever it was we were saved. All three true. And we're going to look at the third aspect of that, saved in real time in just a moment. But for now, we're just focusing on saved by a decree. We were God the Father's, saved by Jesus to whom we were given to save. Back in 1950, a general sales manager at, the insurance, at an insurance company ran home after learning his daughter was ill. His wife comforted him with a note that said the girl was in good hands. The manager recalled the incident at a sales meeting and thus was born, you're in good hands with Allstate. Beloved, you've never been in better hands than being in God's hands. You know, Jesus talks about the double grip. No one can snatch us away. God has decreed, and his decree, every bit of it has come to pass, and it always will. Jesus came into this world to secure salvation and fulfill that decree, and he, he did it at every point, fulfilling every jot and tittle of the law, saving everybody who's going to be saved. That's how secure your salvation and my salvation is. What would it be like to have your salvation so well insured that if America failed and all the banks failed and the insurance companies failed and NATO failed and the European Union failed, yet you and I would be secure in our salvation that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ? How would it change how we lived? How would it change our thought life? How would it change our willingness to serve the Lord? How would it change how we view the world when we go out into it? And all of its chaos and all of its disruption, and all of its hate, how would it change our entire being if we had a salvation that is infinitely secure? Because we have it. Now, I want us to move into the second main heading, which is salvation experienced. If you look at verse 8, at the end we're told, they believed that you sent me. 
Now that could be in some ways a, a summary statement of everything that's about ready to come in, uh, in front of it in verse eight. So they believed that you sent me. That's all this work of belonging to God the Father according to the decree being given to Jesus. The end result, they believed. They actually personally believed. That's when salvation is appropriated or experienced. And I wanna emphasize in this point the exact opposite of what we just looked at and emphasized in the first point. God is sovereign. He determines who's going to be saved, whether or not we human beings, we clay pots like it or not. He's the potter or the clay. You've never seen clay talk back to the potter saying, you can't make me like this. It doesn't work. God is sovereign in it. And yet at the same time, there is this human experience of it and responsibility human responsibility in that salvation that is not undone by God's sovereignty, but fits together like a hand in a glove. And we may say, I've never seen a hand or a glove like that. I don't know how it fits, but the Bible, but the Bible teaches it. So we acknowledge it. We may not be able to explain it, but these are twin truths revealed to us. And so we confess them and acknowledge them and embrace them. No one can believe for us. I want to just begin by saying that our parents can't believe for us. Our best friends, our Sunday school teachers can't believe for us. God can't believe for us. We have to believe. It's on every human being to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ if we are to be saved. And the end of verse 8 is a bit of a summary of this experience. Belong to God the Father, given to Jesus the Son, and then into verse 8, they believe that you sent me. But right before that, we encounter three things I want us to notice. Well, how did they believe? What did this look like? They encountered the word, they received the word, and then they truly came to know Jesus as God and Savior. So first of all, they encountered the word. That's what a disciple does, encounters the word. Verses 6 and 8, I have manifested your name to the people. So this is them encountering the word directly, right? Jesus says the word, capital W. And then verse 8, I have given them the words that you gave me. So we could go back with each of these disciples and look at that when Jesus said, follow me, right? That's kind of them being in front of with the word. And they, they followed. But they weren't revealed, they weren't shown much other than, well, this must be the Messiah. We found him. Let's go follow him. And Jesus says, I've revealed to them the words that you gave me. It's talking about just God's self-revelation, what we would call the word of God. Now, this is special. They saw Jesus face to face. They heard him teach things that just aren't even written down for us. We have a lot of it, all that we need to know in the New Testament. But they saw it. They had revealed the words. They encountered the word. And this is the normal course of how God makes disciples. People encounter the word of God. Maybe they encounter it through Bible study, through a church worship service, through a parent who might be reading uh, a Bible passage to them in family devotions, through their own reading of the Word of God, maybe through a friend who's just quoting it to them, but people encounter the Word of God in very different ways. Sometimes people encounter the Word of God just by reading. A, a, a friend will hand them a Bible and say, hey, read. Hopefully they give a little bit of direction on that. If you start in Ezekiel or Leviticus or First Chronicles chapters 1 through 9, it's a lot of genealogy. That's difficult, right? But again, it's the Word of God. It's tremendous. And people in the normal course of events become disciples by encountering the word of God. And this was the great work of Jesus was to reveal God to his disciples, to teach them, to instruct them. He had compassion 
on the hordes of people. They were like sheep without a shepherd, and he taught them. Gave the Sermon on the Mount, wanted people to be instructed. And this is why churches and missionary organizations and believers in general have such a heart for what? Spreading the word, printing the Bible, getting it in a language people can understand and spreading it, smuggling it into the countries where it's illegal. Because the ordinary way that people come to know the Lord is by encountering the word and the Holy Spirit using that. We translate it. We teach people to read literacy programs. Why? So they can read the word. We turn it into an audio book. We speak it. We hand it out. We smuggle it. We put it in hotel nightstands like the Gideons have done. This is what we desire to do. Now, what's interesting about the Bible is that I think by many accounts, Google did some work on this in 2010. And if you add to it down to 2022, there's been like 156 million unique books that have been published since the Gutenberg Press came in 1440 in its roughest form. 156 million unique books, not copies, but just individual books. The Bible is one of those, just one. Out of all the books of those 156 million, there's one that if you encounter and the Holy Spirit works, is the difference between eternal destruction and eternal life. It's why the Bible is the most printed book in all the world. Billions of copies. I think some estimates six to seven billion. The closest one is down like around one billion. Second closest one. Tremendous beloved. Why? Because Christians understand the necessity of encountering the word of God, getting people to read it, to see Jesus on the pages. The second thing I want us to notice about salvation experience is not just encountering the word, but receiving the word. Verse eight, I have given them the words that you gave me and they received them and have come to know in truth that I came for you. Catch that. And they received them. Now, Jesus is describing to his father the reality of what took place in the lives of these disciples. Hey, I gave them the word and, and they received it. Now, Jesus is familiar with the opposite, right? People hear his teaching, they encounter the word and they do what? They walk away when it gets to the hard sayings and the crowds disperse and there's just a few people left. And by the time you get to Jesus, the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, how many people are left? Not many. Maybe a few hundred, maybe several hundred, but there's not many. A few, quite a few of them in Jerusalem, maybe some scattered all about. But these, these people, they not only encountered your word, they received your word. And the Holy Spirit caused them to ascribe authority to it. And this, this language of reception, what's going on, it has to do with this. That they didn't just encounter the word, but when they read the word and studied it, the Holy Spirit caused them in their hearts to ascribe authority to it. This, there's something here. This is it. This is authoritative for my life. Of all the books written, I can read about Socrates. I can read Plato, Aristotle. I can read tremendous books by historians. I can read mathematics books. I can read science textbooks. I can read books all over the world. But this book right here, this word, you receive it. You drink it all the way in. This is life to me. There is something here in this word that is life to me. R.C. Sproul, probably many of us are familiar with him. He was an American pastor, theologian, died about five years ago. He and his friend Johnny Coles were on their way to Youngstown, Pennsylvania. He was going to college there and um, at West, uh, a college close by. And while they were going there, they stopped. They were going there because the bars were underage kids in and they were underage. He wasn't a believer at the time. They stopped to get a pack of cigarettes 
And while they were there in the lobby of their dorm, they getting the pack of cigarettes, they looked over at some upperclassmen and these upperclassmen were kind of asking what they were doing. They were curious. So they went over there and they were doing a Bible study and they talked to these upperclassmen about Christianity. The upperclassmen talked to them about the things of God and about the Bible. And then one of the upperclassmen turned his Bible around for R.C. Sproul to read and said, here, you can, you can read it. And R.C. Sproul at that point had never read the Bible by his own testimony. And the passage was this, Ecclesiastes 11.3, if a tree falls to the north or to the, or to the south or to the north and the place where it falls, there it will lie. And it cut R.C. in two. And he later said, I'm probably the only person in the history of the church that's ever been converted by Ecclesiastes 11 verse 3. But he saw himself in that fallen tree as someone who's dead and decaying and can't get back up. And there I lie. And there is no getting back up. And I won't live again, right? I can't help myself. I'm a fallen over tree. After this, he read the whole Bible through in like two to three weeks. He didn't just encounter the word, oh, nice story about a tree, great proverb. He received it. It took over his entire life. Now he's consumed by it. And he's got to study this word as a believer to get to know the God of this word. What's interesting is his friend Johnny Coles actually had a bit of an experience that night too. R.C. went back to his room, shut off the lights, and then never went to Youngstown. Kept the lights off, just kneeled by them, and just prayed his, his, his heart out to the Lord. And his best friend Johnny did too, but the next day Johnny was just the same person. So again, he had encountered the word and had done a little bit of emotional work on him or he became emotional about it, but the next day he's not a new person, but R.C. Sproul is. The difference between encountering the word versus encountering the word and receiving it. One person encounters it, oh, isn't that nice? A lot of wisdom there. The other person drinks it. It turns their heart around. They're a brand new person on account of it. And then the third aspect of this is verse 8. Not just encountering the word, receiving it, but coming to truly know Jesus as God and Savior. Verse 8, I have given them the words that you gave me, and they received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And then what's the summary of all that? They have believed that you sent me. But I want to hone in on, they have come to know in truth that I came from you. This is, you could argue, the final step of believing or, or the final thing that Jesus is pointing out here. We go from encountering the word to receiving it. Yeah, this is authoritative for my life to believing. Believing what? That Jesus came from God. The word sent there that or came or, or the Lord, uh, the, the last word they have believed that you sent me is the root word is apostolos. It has to do with sent with a commission. And so the final step is that we believe with certainty that Jesus was sent by God with a commission to do what? To save he was sent to this world on a mission, not just sent willy-nilly, randomly to go into the world and see what it's like, but sent with a purpose, with a mission, fulfill the decree, do the Father's will, save people. The last step of becoming a disciple, according to verse 8, again, just a summary statement, coming to truly know that Jesus has come from God on this mission to save, believing in that with your whole heart. This is what Tim Keller often refers to as the penny dropping years ago when I would listen to me talk about that. At this moment, we could say with Paul, I know whom I believed, I'm persuaded. He's able to keep what I've committed to him. He's able to do this. It's the moment we say we're in. I trust. I've seen the word. I've encountered it. I've received it. Yep, this is authoritative. And now I'm all the way in. 
And I'm going to bet my eternal life on this. I'm going to bet life after death on the fact that this is real. This is true. This is not just true for me. This is just truth for the whole universe. And it's also true for me. I'm walking into it. I believe. C.S. Lewis talked about this using an illustration. You never know how much you really believe anything until it's truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death. It's easy to say you believe a rope to be strong as long as you are merely using it to wrap a cord around a box. But suppose you had to hang by that rope over a precipice. Would you then first discover how much you really trusted it? It's easy to say, yeah, I believe. But I want us to all be aware of what we're believing, what we're not believing. When we say we believe in Jesus Christ, we've encountered the word, we received this word, right? These 66 books printed in your ESV, NASB, NIV, whatever you got, King David, New King James, tons of English translations. When we receive this word and we believe that Jesus has come from God, sent into this world to save us from our sins, we are saying something very powerful, beloved, and you're taking a risk. And here's the risk, that Jesus is who he says he is. That God the Father has decreed salvation, Jesus has accomplished it. And it's a risk we're taking, right? There is, in, in some sense, it's a risk. In some sense, there is no risk. This is more sure than bread that Jesus is the only Savior. What we're saying is I'm betting my entire life here and forever on the fact that Jesus saves. And God the Father decrees that his Son will save and that the triune God is real. And he's the God of the entire universe and that life is found in him. That's what we're saying when we believe. We're all in. Our existence will matter uh, based on what we say or don't say about this. Charles Blondin was a Frenchman, the first one in 1859 to walk over the Niagara Falls. He stretched a rope, it was like something like a quarter mile long, crazy scale and uh, secured it with some guy wires to the shore. And eventually he walked all the way over. I guess during the course of his life, he had crossed the Niagara something like 300 times. He had gone over the Niagara Falls eventually. So he did this on numerous occasions. And at one point he actually brought a stove on his back and cooked an egg out there on the rope. And it was a two inch rope. And I think at one point he dropped, he actually pulled something from a boat below. Uh, and I don't know what they were exchanging. But anyways, uh, one time he's reported to have asked, hey, do you believe I can carry a person across in the wheelbarrow? They, everybody in the crowd said, yes, right? We believe you can do that. And he said, who's getting in the wheelbarrow? <laughs> Crickets. Nobody got in, right? That's it. So they've encountered Charles Blondin, this Frenchman, and his ability. They've received the fact that he can do this, that he's comfortable out there. He pushed a wheelbarrow across with nobody in it, with a sack of potatoes in it. But nobody had yet believed in him enough that they would bet on it. To believe in Jesus, beloved, is to get in that wheelbarrow where he said, there's one way to heaven. And I'm walking this perfect tightrope of obedience. And if I fall off on either side, we're both finished. And I'm telling you, we're gonna make it through. You jump on my back, I've accomplished this, I've got it entirely. Everyone who believes is saying, Lord Jesus, I'm jumping on your back and you're carrying me across this thing. Now, eventually, uh, the, the guy's name, Harry Colkerd, was Charles Blondin's manager. Uh, he actually let him take him across on piggyback. Now, of course, he's the manager. He has something in this. 
But you get the point, beloved. This one guy actually trusted him enough to jump on his back. Beloved, that's salvation experience. And again, I don't want to do away with God's sovereignty and salvation because it's all throughout the Bible. But they're twin truths. You just can't separate. You can't tear them apart. It's like the same coin with two different sides on it. You can't get rid of one side of the coin. I want us all to be thinking about this. Have I experienced the salvation? Not as God decreed it, we know God's decreed it, revealed all throughout Scripture. Has Jesus accomplished it? Yeah, the whole testimony of all four Gospels, he accomplished the salvation. Testimony of the apostles and the letters, he accomplished it. But now not have you encountered the word? Do you know the word? Do you view the word as as authoritative? But this, do you believe that Jesus has come from God? That God sent Jesus Christ into this world to save sinners of whom you are one and I am one? Have you embraced him? Do you love him? Do you believe in him? Do you trust your eternal existence on him? If not, I urge you to do just that. Let's pray.